How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that we are to be in fellowship when we study the word. We are to live our lives as much as possible by walking by the Spirit. When we walk by the Spirit, Scripture teaches uh, that God, the Holy Spirit, then works in our life to uh, to teach us uh, the Scriptures, help us to understand it, to produce fruit in our lives and spiritual growth. And when we're not walking by the Spirit, then we're walking by the by the sin nature. So those are the only options that we really have in this in the spiritual life. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to study the Word. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Father, again, we appreciate the fact that we can come together in freedom to study your word, that this freedom was understood by the uh, founders of this nation, by the early colonialists who came here and first began to uh, conquer this continent. And, Father, we pray that as we go forward that we can continue to have that freedom and that it is the basis of that freedom to study your word, to apply your word, and to grow on the basis of your word that we have all of the wonderful blessings and freedoms and prosperity that this nation has had. Father, that's very much under threat by many different uh, sectors, both from outside of this nation as well as within. And, Father, we pray that your word might be a real protection for this nation and that you will continue to give us the opportunities to proclaim the gospel, to explain the gospel to friends, and to make sure that uh, the gospel continues to go out from this from this country. Father, now as we study your word and we study about the spiritual life that you've given us, we pray that we might uh, recognize the great challenge that is before us in this chapter in Romans, the challenge to put into practice and to live on the basis of that which you have, have already given us in our spiritual life, that we might be a witness, a testimony, not only here on earth, but also as we live our lives before you and before the angels. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of comments on a couple of other things while you're turning to Romans 6. The last couple of weeks I have informed you from various news sources about the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe right now, which is extremely dangerous. This has a corollary in the United States from some interesting um, uh, from some interesting quarters, both from within the evangelical church as well as from outside of the evangelical church. But last, I don't know whether it was this last Tuesday or last Thursday night, I talked about the, the uh, I read a news report about how a legal decision was handed down in Cologne in Germany that made circumcision uh, illegal in Germany. 
and then there were a couple of court cases that came up recently and that this has some uh, corollary in some of the other European countries. And, of course, circumcision is not just a surgical procedure for the Jewish community, but it is a significant ritual that goes all the way back to uh, Abraham that sets the Jewish people apart as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And so by when the when the any government comes in and begins to uh, lay down uh, legislative procedures related to circumcision, it is always uh, in the it's just a, a camouflage for anti-Semitism. And, and going back to the rise of the Third Reich under Hitler, as well as much earlier in uh, in other European countries, but in in modern times with the rise of Hitler. This was what took place, is these kinds of little things that took place leading to uh, much greater, much worse things. In light of some, the, the topic that some people just really don't get it, in, the, in Berlin and the region around Berlin, they uh, voted on a new law or passed a new, new law uh, a couple of days ago that said that that uh, circumcision would be allowed, but only if it was done by a medical doctor as a medical procedure. Now, the problem with that is that in the Jewish community, circumcision has to be performed by a moil, by a religiously, they are trained by doctors, but they have to, it has to be done, it is a religious rite, it's not just a medical or surgical procedure. So once again, they just don't get it, and it's, it's just other forms, hidden forms of anti, anti-Semitism. And every now and then this rears its ugly head. There is a movie that came out about two years ago, I think now called With God on Our Side, that was produced by an anti-Christian Zionist group of evangelicals that has gained some notoriety. And I think I mentioned this last week, and I, I said, talked about this conference that occurred at um, uh, in, uh, in Bethlehem last year. I think I called it Christ at the Crossroads. I never can remember exactly what it's called, but it's Christ... Uh, Christ at the crossing, I think, or Christ at the border crossing, something of that nature. And there were just hundreds and hundreds of, of Anglicans from England, Canada, United States that went to uh, this conference, and it was just virulent anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, pro-Palestinianism. And, of course, this reared its ugly little head yesterday and stuck its head out from under the covers at the Democrat National Convention when it became known and it was realized that they had taken the verbiage out of the out of their platform that Jerusalem was to be that they believed in the past that Jerusalem was the capital of Israel of course they've never acted upon that that's the thing about platforms is is in one sense they they say something but it's non-binding and so it really in another sense doesn't mean anything it's sort of window dressing but they, um, because they've never acted on that, the U.S. has never officially recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Hello, this goes back to the, when David conquered the Jebusite city in approximately 1,000 uh, B.C. And if you ask just about anybody, what's the capital of Israel? Isn't it Jerusalem? Well, uh, the Jews believe it is. And ever since they took Jerusalem back in 1967 and unified it, 
Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, but it's not recognized as such by anyone. All of their embassies are in Tel Aviv. The U.S. embassy is in Tel Aviv. It's not in Jerusalem. And this has been a an issue that was um, uh, the United States Congress, in fact, voted to move the embassy to Jerusalem back in the back in the 90s. But every couple of years, Congress finds a reason to postpone that because to do so just is is going to be viewed by the Palestinians as just an anti-Palestinian act, and this is viewed by the Arabs, and we're just scared to death of the of the Arabs and the Muslims, so this is what goes on behind that. So at the Democrat National Convention, when this was discovered, that that statement about a firm conviction that um, Jerusalem was, the, uh, was to be unified, never to be divided, and is the capital of Israel, that that verbiage had been taken out, then, of course, uh, it it made all you know everybody twittered about it or tweeted about it and uh, it went out on all of the Facebook pages and mass communication, generating this thing that happened yesterday, which was quite unusual. But uh, when they voted to put it back in, and of course you've probably seen all the news reports, and they um, uh, it didn't sound to me like uh, they had really uh, they had the two thirds uh, vote on an oral, oral vote to put the uh, verbiage back in, but it's, it's pretty clear what's going on. And this just shows the, the extent of the warfare over the traditional beliefs of the United States. And the United States, going back to the Puritans, has been pro, pro-Israel. Long before there was an Israel, long before there was a restoration, there was a desire among the Puritans to see the Jewish people restored to their historic homeland. And so this has been part of American traditional thought and belief for uh, well over 200 years, 300 years. And, um, and so this is, this, we're seeing the edges crumble. They, they've already crumbled, but there's this veneer there that came back yesterday. So uh, that was um, kind of interesting to watch that. All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 6, verse 14. I think I got just about this far last time, and I wanted to stop here a, a little bit and just talk a, a little bit more about what's going on, that in this section of Romans, Paul is really laying down for us the foundation for the spiritual life. And this is something that I find uh, that a lot of people, a lot of churches, a lot of Christians don't really spend a lot of time thinking about. We're, we're so concerned about doing the right thing and having the right code of conduct externally that we don't teach the real abstract foundation for why we can live the Christian life, which is what Paul does, in, especially in these first 14 verses of Romans 6, gr- uh, grounding his argument in the baptism by the Holy Spirit, this one-time event that takes place at the instant, anyone believes in Christ. We don't feel anything, we don't experience anything, but it's one of any number of things that God does for us at the instant of salvation. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer said there were 32 things that God did for us at the instant of salvation. Later that was expanded to 36, 38, 39, 40. Some people have taken all the subpoints from some of those because he would have like seven works of the Holy Spirit. So some people have taken those as individuals and had 80, 90, 100 I don't get caught up in numbers. There's a lot of things that God did for us simultaneously and instantly at the point of salvation. 
And one of the things that happens, as we studied in the first part of Romans, was that we were declared just. At the instant that we trust in Christ as Savior, God the Father imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. We don't feel, any, feel anything, but we are given new righteousness. At the same instant, God the Father declares us to be justified. We are conformed to his righteousness. Now, we haven't changed. We're still sinners. We still have a sin nature, but we have been credited with the righteousness of Christ and on the basis of our faith in Christ. And at that instant, we're declared righteous. At the same instant that all of this takes place simultaneously, we are regenerated. We're given a new nature. We move from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. At that same instant, we are also adopted into God's royal family. So we have a new identity. We are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And at that same time, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection is the topic especially of verses uh, 2 through 6 here in in Romans chapter 6, that in the identification with Christ's death, everything that we were prior to salvation is crucified and is dead and is identified with that death of Christ on the cross, which is the foundation. That has to die, just like a seed has to die before new life comes out. That real death occurs, and real death is a separation, separation from all that we were before we were saved. That occurs so that we can realize the potential of our new life in Christ. Second Corinthians uh, 5 uh, 17, that we have become new creatures in Christ. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. That's the foundation. Understanding that is why Paul can say, now that you know this, reckon or consider or think of yourselves as dead to sin. This is the command in Romans 6.11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves or consider yourselves, think of yourselves as dead indeed to sin. So it's not that the sin nature is dead, but that we are dead or separated from its tyrannical power. Something has has radically changed there. And so we, uh, prior to salvation, all, all we could do was follow the dictates of that sin nature. But after salvation, after we trust in Christ as Savior, that tyranny is broken and we are free not to sin. And that's really the focus of the next part, the second half of this chapter from verse 15 to verse 23, is that we are free not to sin. See, it's funny how people get the idea, well, we're free. We're free from the law. Can we, can we sin with impunity? No, we're not saved so we can be free to sin. That's actually what the licentious position says is, oh, goody, we have grace, so we're free to sin. No, we're free not to sin. That's what the whole point is. We're free not to sin. So this is what develops in this second half of of, uh, uh, Romans chapter 6. So just to bring bring us back to where I ended the last time, Paul draws this conclusion in verses 12 through 14 from what he has said in the first 11 verses of the chapter. He says, therefore... Because this has happened, 
because this break occurs between the person you were before you were saved and the new person you are now with all the potential that you, you and I have in Christ, because you're this new person in Christ, don't let sin reign, dominate, control your mortal body. That you should obey it in its lust. So he's basically saying, quit sinning. I don't know how else he could say it. He's just saying, quit, quit sinning. You no longer have to sin. Our problem is that, that we will never realize perfection because we will always, to some degree, succumb to the sin nature, but we don't have to. That's the challenge. And, um, and then in verse 13, as we see, and I've, uh, the circles just indicate the conjunctions that are there that help us understand the flow of his argument. He adds in verse 13 to this command, first of all, don't sin or don't let sin dominate your life. And so this is in addition to not letting sin dominate your life. He says, don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. That means the members is a term that refers to your entire bo- our entire body. Don't let it be the tool of the sin nature. Now that involves everything. It involves letting our feet run to mischief, letting our hands do evil things, letting our tongues gossip, slander, uh, all of the many different sins that we can commit overtly. Uh, the body is not to be an instrument or a tool or a weapon of unrighteousness for the purpose to leading to sin. But instead, we are to present ourselves to God as being alive from the dead. So the pattern, again, is that resurrection life. We are alive. We have this new life. In this chart, I emphasize the basic commands. Don't let sin reign or dominate or control. Don't present your members as instrument of unrighteousness. In other words, this is something you need to stop doing so that you can start presenting your uh, selves to God as being alive from the dead. These, these two words are the same words in the Greek. The first is a present tense imperative with a negative which implies or may imply stop doing something you're doing, but it's that we, we can't present ourselves to two masters at the tam- same time. You can't serve the sin nature and God at the same time. You have to stop one in order to do the other. That's, that's, it's a very simple idea. You have to stop one so you can do the other. And we have to realize that we are now alive from the dead, and we are to present our members or uh, as instruments or tools or weapons of righteousness to God. That's our task as believers. That's, that's our mission. And then he explains one more time the principle in verse 14, for sin shall not... And this is a command for sin, and he's really saying, for sin should not have dominion over you. You shall not let sin rule over you. He's just repeating the same command of verse 12. He uses a different word, but it's the same idea. He uses a synonym that we're not to let sin have dominion over us. And then that phrase that I ended on last time, kind of a new thought for most of us, for, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, that is an extremely interesting concept that has and an a difficult phrase to understand. And the reason is, is because for many people, in the way that we have often heard this taught, is that, well, we're not under the Mosaic law anymore. 
but we're under we're under grace. And that's sort of true. It's sort of like uh, the ball is in play, but it's just going down the, the, the right right down the foul line. It's it's sort of partially true, but it hasn't really captured the essence or the significance of what Paul is implying by this contrast of being under law and now being under grace. Because in what sense, we should ask, in what sense is it that if we are no longer under the Mosaic law, that we're somehow free from the sin nature? How does removing the commandments of the Mosaic law as a a mandate for our life give us freedom from the control of the sin nature? All that the law did, according to all that the law does, according to Romans seven, is exacerbate and highlight our our sinfulness. The law wasn't given to Israel so that they would have a way to get to heaven. That by obeying the law they could get to heaven, but to expose the fact that sin pervades everything in our life, and we can't save ourselves. It's impossible. We can't live a sinless, perfect life. Nobody can obey the law. So the the Mosaic law, by its simple removal, doesn't free us from the sin nature. It might free us from the exposure of more elements of the sin nature, but it doesn't free us from that dominion of the sin nature. So how can that be the the, the main idea here? Uh, Another idea, though, is, is possible by this phrase that I think makes sense. And so I've come back and I've put together a rudimentary uh, chart here that would get this point across. This is a uh, dispensational chart or how God administers the ages. Now, there are some things that are the same in every age. That is that God is the one who provides salvation, and salvation is always provided on the basis of faith alone in the promise of God. Now, in the Old Testament, the promise of God was unfulfilled. It was in the future. The promise was that a Messiah would come. God would provide a deliverer who would take care of the sins of the world. And this is pictured in numerous ways, the most uh, clear of which would be the sacrificial lambs, the Passover lamb, the, uh, the goat at the Day of Atonement, these substitutionary sacrifices, as we've studied in uh, our study on Isaiah 53 on Tuesday night, were very, very clear that a substitute was necessary, a death, a substitutionary death was necessary in order to provide sa- salvation. But now we look back. In the Old Testament period, you, they looked forward to a future solution, a future redemption. When Jesus came, he fulfilled all of those types and all of those pictures and all of the prophecies. He was indeed the promised Messiah, the Redeemer for Israel, and he went to the cross as a lamb without spot or blemish. As John the Baptist called him, he was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And once that perfect sacrifice took place on the cross, now we look back to that event And again, we believe the promise of God. It's not the same promise, though. The promise in the Old Testament was, I will in the future provide a Savior. The promise now is, Jesus is the Messiah. If you believe on him, you will have eternal life. 
but it's still the principle of faith alone in the promise of God. So God doesn't change the basic nature of salvation, doesn't change. It's still by uh, faith alone. It is by grace through faith. So there were also other expectations that God had for people on the earth. There were different circumstances. And so just generally speaking, the bottom line refers to large time periods that I refer to as ages based on the Greek term I own. These are the the large age of the Gentiles, which was really subdivided into three dispensations as the original creation covenant is modified. You have the dispensation of innocence, uh, which is really an appropriate term because man was judicially innocent before God. He was not guilty of sin. He wasn't just not guilty. He was truly innocent. There was no sin yet. When Adam sinned, Genesis 3, there's a modification of the original creation covenant, and this is usually referred to as the Adamic covenant now, and that introduced a new dispensation, usually called the dispensation of of human conscience. That ended at the flood. There's another covenant at the end of the flood, a covenant with Noah that brought in the the dispensation of of human government. And this this uh, this period, these three dispensations make up the age of the Gentiles because there's no special people of God in terms of the Jewish people yet. With the failure of the Tower of Babel, God called out Abram. Abram is the father of the Jewish people, and from the moment that God called out Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, from that instant, God is no longer working as a whole through all of the human race. He is working uh, specifically through the Jewish people. God has chosen and revealed to us that he would bless all of the people, all, all of mankind, only through the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the age of the patriarchs, or the excuse me, the dispensation of the patriarchs is a dispensation in the age of Israel because Israel begins with the call of call of Abraham at the after the exodus event at Mount Sinai God gives a new covenant to the Jewish people and this is the Mosaic covenant and that introduces the dispensation of the law and this is what dominates until Christ comes. And then we're told in, 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 in Romans that Christ's death is the end of the law. So the law goes from uh, Mount Sinai to Golgotha. And at Golgotha, you have the end of the law. And then you have beginning of a new dispensation, starting with the, with the uh, day of Pentecost. The new dispensation is coterminous or identical with the, the uh, the age, the church age, or the dispensation of grace. And we are now under grace. But let me ask you a question. Was there grace in the Old Testament? Of course there was. Again and again and again, you have grace in the Old Testament. Is there law in the New Testament? Of course there is. There's hundreds and hundreds of imperative mood verbs and uh, the hundreds and other hundreds of other ways of expressing the imperative concept in the New Testament. So there are commands in the New Testament, even though it's the age of grace. There's grace in the Old Testament, even though it's the age of law. 
I mean, the dispensation of law. So, so what are we getting at here? What, what is the essential difference here? And I believe, based on this passage, that it's, it has to do with the whole issue of the slavery to the sin nature. Remember what Paul's foundational argument is here? His foundational argument is, is the way that we recognize that the sin nature is no longer is in control is because the sin nature has been crucified. With, I mean, the old man has been crucified with Christ, and that has broken the power of the sin nature so that with the old man crucified, that the body of sin or the sin nature, verse 6, might be done away with. So the power of the sin nature is broken at the cross. Did that, that, was there anything comparable to that in the Old Testament? Nothing. Not one thing comparable to that in the Old Testament because they didn't have the baptism by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't come in. The first time that happens is on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends upon the church. So there's no freedom from the sin nature in the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but that, that's been around the edges of my thinking for a long time, but to, to, to come, really come to grips and to think about that makes us realize how radically different this, the spiritual life that we have is from the spiritual life of Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and everybody in the Old Testament all the way up to John the Baptist. That's why Jesus says that the John the Baptist is the greatest of the Old Testament saints, but he is much less than anyone in the church age because we have been given so much. We have true, genuine freedom from the sin nature which nobody had in the Old Testament because they didn't have this baptism by the Holy Spirit that breaks the power of the sin nature. The hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, breaking the power of canceled sin. That's that idea there. He uses, and it's excellent verbiage because uh, it's written by, uh, I think it was written by uh, John or Charles Wesley, and he says it breaks the power of canceled sin. The, the break, breaking the powers in the present tense, but it, he uses a past tense with the word cancel to indicate that the sin was already canceled at the cross. That's Colossians uh, 2.13 through 15, that that certificate of debt was wiped out at the cross. But it is only when we trust in Christ that that power of the sin nature is broken. The sin's been canceled. So that's that's great accurate doctrinal terminology in that, that hymn for over a thousand tongues to sing. So we have these the, the two uh, dispensations in focus here, the law and grace. Under law, there is not a dynamic, there's not a methodology, there's not the indwelling of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, there's not the baptism of the Spirit, there's nothing related to God the Holy Spirit. He, In fact, he has promised to Israel as part of the new covenant when God brings the nation to its final redemption at the time of the millennial kingdom. But there's, that's only future. There's no reality there. You go back now. I want to go back and read through those passages in Jeremiah 31 in the corollary passages dealing with the uh, new covenant because in those passages there's a realization of the absolute hopelessness that Israel had in terms of being able to deal with sin. And the hope is in the future promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have something similar. It's not that same thing because that that's tied to that new covenant doesn't come into effect 
until God restores the Jewish people to the land at the end of the tribulation. And at that time, uh, the new covenant goes into effect uh, for, for the Jewish people. But we have, uh, we have something similar uh, and, but distinct in, in the church age now. So this breaks this down for us. And the more we think about that, the more it should uh, awaken us to the, to the absolutely profound nature of this new life that we have, uh, we have in Christ. And so Paul ends this section talking about the fact that we have uh, this new life and we're no longer under the dominion of sin. Why? Because we're not under law. We're no longer living in the conditions of the dispensation of the law. We are now living under the conditions of the dispensation of grace. And then in verse 15, he asks the question. You'll see here, I change the question marks to red font so you would see the uh, four questions that are uh, asked here. What then? Okay, so what's the big deal? Why is this so important that I understand this really abstract thing called baptism of the Holy Spirit? After all, I went to a Baptist church or a Methodist church or an Episcopalian church or whatever kind of church most of my life, and they never even talked about it. Of course, if you went to a charismatic church, they talked about it all the time, but they didn't get it right either. Why is this so important? And that's what Paul says, so what? He says, should we sin now because we are not under law but under grace? Now that we've understood what under law and under grace describes in terms of these these two dispensations, we can understand Paul's question a little more clearly. He says, well, now that we're not under the Mosaic law, we're not in bondage to the Mosaic law, our sins paid for, the power of the sin nature is broken, the old unregenerate person that we were is crucified, we're separated from him, that person's gone, we're locked into a new life, a new identity, and new provisions and new powers by God the Holy Spirit. Now that we have all this, wow, this is great. Can we just go on sinning? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? No, not at all. See, we're not saved or given freedom so that we can sin. We're given freedom so that we won't sin. Not that we can't sin or don't sin, but so we won't sin. We now have an ability to say no to the sin nature. And then he asks the next question, which is a long, multi-part question. You think Paul would have a convoluted sentence? He says, do you not know? And so when he asks that, just to give you a preview before we get to that verb, he uses a perfect tense verb there. And what that does is it's indicating that this is something they already know. And he's sort of referring here to a, a general principle taken from an analogy with life. And the analogy is one of slavery. Now, slavery doesn't communicate real well to us because we live in a post-slavery world and yet it communicated very well to a person living in the first century. And so he, is ref- he uses this verb here. It's a different verb than the one he used uh, back in uh, uh, earlier where he says, do you not know? Uh, here he's saying, uh, do you not know, in the sense that, that this is something you should know because it's evident from our culture, everything around us, that when you present yourselves... Uh, as a slave to somebody, when you obey someone, you're presenting yourself as a slave to them. So he says, don't you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, 
that you are that one's slaves whom you obey. Now, stop a minute and think about that. Anytime we give ourselves over to follow the lusts of the sin nature, we're basically saying, I'm going to let the sin nature dominate and control and tyrannize my life. Anytime you let somebody else control you, you're letting them control you, and you are essentially making them, uh, making yourself a slave to them. This often happens in a lot of relationships where you think that having someone else uh, respond to you a certain way is essential for your happiness. And what you've just done is said, how that person responds to me determines on whether or not I'm happy or not. So you become a slave to somebody else's opinion of you. One day they're in a good mood and they like you and you feel great. The next day uh, they're in a bad mood and they don't like you and now you're in the dumps because your emotional well-being has, you've tied your emotional well-being to how somebody else views you. And we do that with our circumstances. If things are going the way I think they should go, then I'll be happy. Well, you've just made yourself a slave to whatever the circumstances are, your your job, your friends, your social life, uh, your romantic life, whatever it might be. You've just made yourself a slave to those circumstances. If the circumstances are positive, then I'm happy. If the circumstances are negative, then I'm sad. And so we put ourselves on an emotional roller coaster because we've tied our emotional well-being to something that is always in flux. We can only have perfect stability in our emotions if we connect our emotions to a circumstance that won't ever change. There's only one circumstance that won't ever change, and that's the immutability of God. And because God is immutable and never changes, when our emotional well-being is locked onto the glory of God, then the circumstances can change to be extremely negative, to extremely positive, but our emotional stability and well-being never changes because it's locked into God and it's locked on to, to his character. So whenever we focus on something as the one in control and we can place circumstances or people in control or a sin nature in control, we basically enslave ourselves to them. They're the ones who hold all the reins and we can do the same thing with our sin nature. And so Paul alludes to this common situation that if you present yourselves as a slave to obey someone, then you're the slave to that person whom you are obeying. Today, it might be one person in one area. Tomorrow, it might be another person. Today, if you're obedient to the sin nature, then you are enslaving yourself to your lust patterns. Tomorrow, you decide, well, I'm going to walk with the Lord today. So then you enslave yourself to the Lord, but you're always a slave. That's one thing that you should get out of this, this, this whole picture here, Yet we only have two options. We're either going to be a slave to the sin nature or we're going to be a slave to God. We're either a slave to our own arrogance, self-absorption, and all of the lust patterns of our sin nature, or we're a slave to God. There's no third option. So he says, Don't you know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death, So when we sin, it leads to death. Now, who's he talking to here? Is he talking to believers? Is he talking to Christians? 
Or is he talking to unbelievers, to non-Christians? Who's he talking to? He's talking to believers. So the sin leading to death here isn't eternal death in the lake of fire. It is carnal death. It is experiencing the death-like consequences of living on the basis of the corruption of the sin nature. If we're going to sit down in, in, in the house of corruption and the sin nature and live as a slave to the corrupting sin nature, then we're going to experience all of the death-like traits as if we were spiritually dead. We're going to, we may be saved and our eternal destiny is heaven, but our experience in life isn't going to be any better than the unbeliever who's living on the basis uh, uh, that is spiritually dead and experiencing all of that corruption. So we have two options there. I'm going to skip, skip that slide. In this slide, I've highlighted the, those present words again. You have the, uh, verse 16 uses your, the one whom you present yourself as a slave to obey. You're, 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 if you, you're a slave to the one to whom you present yourself to, to obey. And then it's used again in the indicative mood down in verse 19, but it comes down at the last use at the bottom there in 619. He once again refers or returns to an aorist imperative. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness. If you take out verses, everything from about the middle of 19 through uh, 15 and 14, then you just come right back. Everything in between is just explaining what he says in verse 13, which is we are to present ourselves to God as being alive from the dead and presenting our members as instruments of, of righteousness to God. Everything in between explains that, and he comes back there and he says, see, now that you understand this, you are to go on presenting yourselves as um, slaves of righteousness for holiness. That's the King James Version, but the best translation is for sanctification or to bring it down even more for spiritual growth. So that's the key to spiritual growth is presenting ourselves as obedient to God uh, as slaves of righteousness. So the issue, the question he asks, should we continue in sin? He answers it, as I've said, do you not know? We've got to understand and know and make a part of our thinking the things that happened at salvation. We didn't experience them. We're so used to basing our opinions and actions on things we feel and experience that this runs counter to that, it's faith. God says, this is what happened. You didn't feel it. You didn't experience it. You were regenerated, and you were given new life. You're a new person in Christ with new capabilities and potentials, and you need to live on that basis. And this is the principle, that if you let the sin nature run your life, then you are willingly enslaving yourself to the sin nature. It's your volition. It's your responsibility You may end up destroying yourself. You may end up with a lot of self-induced misery. You may end up uh, uh, neurotic. You may end up psychotic. You may end up completely divorced from reality in in an insane asylum. But isn't it interesting the Bible never talks about being crazy? Why? Because everything that led to being crazy is a result of your volition. So craziness and insanity are not options 
They, they get you a get-out-of-jail-free card like our legal system has. The reason you're nuts and you're crazy and you're psychotic is because that's the result of hundreds, if not thousands, of small bad decisions. And after a while, it snowballs into the fact that you have so fragmented your soul and so destroyed yourself from the inside out that you can't deal with reality anymore. But that was all your choice to do that. So it all comes down to this issue of knowledge. Now, notice what Paul does in verse 16. He says, we are the slave of the one whom we obey, whether of sin, and again, it's that singular of the word sin indicating the sin nature, whether of sin leading to death. Okay, that's the top line. Notice what he does here. He says, whether it's of, we're presenting ourselves to the sin nature, and that results in death, or to obedience. Notice, obedience is in contrast to the sin nature. He uses a figure of speech here to refer to uh, the, the, the ultimate cause of sin is disobedience. The ultimate cause of living the Christian life is obedience. So the contrast is between sin, which is a result of disobedience, versus obedience. But instead of saying disobedience versus obedience, he says sin versus obedience. Sin produces death, but notice obedience doesn't produce uh, life. It produces, he's, he's talking about that which is the foundation of life, which is righteousness. We don't have the kind of life that God talks about in Scripture apart from righteousness. You can't have the kind of life that God offers on the basis of unrighteousness and immorality. You can only have it on the basis of spirituality and the virtue produced in a, the believer's life by God the Holy Spirit. So he is saying you're either going to go one of two ways. You're either going to obey your sin nature and enslave yourself to your sin nature, but the end result of that is the corrupting influence of the sin nature on your life, and you're just going to be the walking dead, or you're going to obey God, and the result of that is that experiential righteousness is developed in your life which leads to real substantive life, the life that Christ promised, not the righteousness of imputed righteousness, the basis of justification, but this is the righteousness that is the result of someone living out the consequences of their their justification. Before we go any further, let's hold your place there. I want to show you this distinction quickly. Let's go over to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. James 2 talks about, it's it's one of those difficult passages. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But it talks about this fact that there are two kinds of righteousness. And we have to understand there's a righteousness that is the righteousness of Christ that is credited or imputed to us at the instant of salvation. And God sees that in us and declares us righteous. We're still fallen. We're still sinners. But we are cloaked in the righteousness of Christ, as it were. And on that basis, not on the basis of anything we've done, but on the basis of his character, we're declared righteous. Now, in this discourse on faith 
and works in uh, James 2. I want to just go to James uh, 2.21. And we'll just kind of read down there, and I'll make a couple of comments. He asked the question. He's dealing with this whole issue of what's the relationship of faith to works. And the, the basic conclusion of James is that there's not a relationship I know that surprises some of you because it, it sort of looks like that's what he's trying to say. But what he's trying to say is there's not a necessary relationship between being saved and producing experiential righteousness. In verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now remember, when this episode occurs in Genesis 22, that God, that, that Abraham's an old man. Uh, Isaac has grown to maturity at this time. He's either a late teenager, 20s, 30s, uh, somewhere in that time frame. He was the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 that through you I will give you a, you'll be the father of many nations. And then he adds to that promise that eventually this, this seed is going to come through you and Sarah. And Abraham is saying, look, I'm an old man. I'm way past the years of childbearing. Sarah's an old woman. She's way past the age of childbearing. And God said, well, that's why I've waited so long, basically, is so this miracle can take place. But you had to learn to trust me that I would fulfill the promise. And that happens when Abraham is, is 100 years old. And now Abraham is about 120 or 130 years of age, and in this period in between, he's had to learn to trust God, that God promised you the seed. He gave you Isaac finally, and there have been numerous threats to Isaac's life in the meantime, and God has protected him, provided for him, and now God's going to see if if you've learned all your lessons and you really do trust him to preserve Isaac. Now, when was Abraham originally justified or saved before Genesis 12 Genesis 15:6 which occurs before Isaac is born says remember Abraham was justified by faith and not by and not by works he was justified by faith alone so that's when he's declared righteous but he had to grow and mature to realize to let that justification produce experiential righteousness. He's declared righteous on the basis of his first faith in God, but then he's given new life and he begins to grow, and we see the maturity of that in Genesis 22. That's the justification that that James is talking about here when when he's talking about wasn't Abraham justified by works? He's not talking about justified before God, but he's talking about his justification, which he already had, is coming to maturity because in the next verse he says, don't you see or do you see that faith was working together with his works and by his works, that is, by his obedience to God, his faith was made, and here's a bad translation, not made perfect, that Greek word there is telos, it has the idea brought to completion. See, his justification started, but he's a new baby. He has to come to maturity. That idea, tell us, has to do with coming to maturity. So his, his, his faith is brought to maturity through his obedience. And then the next verse says, and the scripture was what? Fulfilled or brought to completion 
that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's Genesis 15:6. He believes God, it's accounted to him for righteousness when he's first saved, but that all he has at that point is the uh, imputed righteousness of Christ. He has to have to grow to maturity, he has to obey God and that's the growth of experiential righteousness. So we see these two categories of righteousness at work in Abraham uh, there in Genesis chapter 6. Now let's go, I mean, uh, James chapter 2. Let's go back to Romans 6. So Romans 6 is talking about the same thing. Romans 3 and 4 talked about how we acquire the righteousness of God. It's by faith. It goes to Genesis 15, 6. But now what Paul is talking about is not imputed righteousness, but experiential righteousness. How do we realize this in our own life so that we can realize not just eternal life that is unending life with God in heaven, but that fullness of life, that abundance of life, that quality of life that God has for us. So in verse 17, Paul says, but God be thanked. And if you notice, I've I've, uh, taken out some words because they're not in, uh, in most manuscripts. And it gives you a little better understanding of the text. But God be thanked because you were slaves of sin, but you obeyed from the heart. So it makes that contrast. It's very strong in the Greek. God be thanked because you were slaves of sin, but you obeyed. That is, you responded by by faith, and you obeyed the teaching that you were given And as a result of that, you started growing to maturity. Verse 18 says, And having been freed from sin, actually this is an heirs passive participle that's temporal. It should be you um, when you were set free from sin, which happens when? When are we set free from sin? We're set free from the power of the sin nature at salvation. When you were set free from sin, you became, and the word there indicates you became something you weren't before, you became a slave of righteousness. And the point he's making is when you and I trusted in Christ as our Savior, at that instant, we quit being a slave to the sin nature in terms of our position and in terms of our identity and in terms of legal ownership, and we became the legal property of God. But we still like to run away from God and go back to our old master. But the point he's making here is that when you were set free from sin, which is when you trust in Christ as your Savior, you became a slave of righteousness. You became a new creature in Christ. Part of that is you become a slave of righteousness. Now he says, I'm speaking in human terms. This is verse 19. What he means is I'm using a human analogy from our common experience to try to help understand this difficult concept. Because, and so he just says it this way, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. And then he explains this a little further. He says, for just as you, were pre- you presented your members, that is your body, as slaves of uncleanness, that's just another term for talking about the works of the sin nature, you, just as you presented or offered your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, which led to more lawlessness. That's as an unbeliever. So he says, now, now see, we come back to our main command. Now, 
present your members as slaves of righteousness for sanctification. So a change has taken place, and because now we're a new creature in Christ, rather than making a decision to let the sin nature control us, we have to make the decision to not let the sin nature control us. But there's more to it than that. And that's because we have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't come in until Romans Romans 8. But here he's in Romans 6, he's laying the foundation so that we understand the, the whole transformation that's taken place from the moment of our, our salvation. And then, they, then he lays it out in the last, last four verses of the chapter. He says, For, which is an explanation, when you were slaves of sin, that is, when you were an unbeliever, you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, what that means is that you were independent of righteousness. In other words, when you were a sin, there's no righteousness in your life. This is Isaiah 64, 6. All our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. Isaiah chapter 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. It is, we're all sinners. So when you were a slave of sin, when you were an unbeliever, you were free. In other words, there was no righteousness in your life. Notice how he explains this. I've, I've circled the conjunctions there. Four is an explanation. And then there's a question at the beginning of verse 21. Then he answers it for the end of those things is death, but contrast, and then a last explanation uh, stating a principle in verse 23. And the goal of all of this is this idea of fruit to holiness. Now remember the last part of verse 19 says we're to be slaves of righteousness for holiness or for sanctification. That's the same word that's used here. We're to be producing fruit for sanctification. Okay, let's go to verse 20. I didn't get the circles out of that. but For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now verse 21. He asked the question, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? What was the production? Fruit is the end result of a growing, uh, growing plant. It's, it's the production. So he says, what was the production? What was the end result of, of all those things you did as an unbeliever under the power of the sin nature of which you are now ashamed. For the end result of that, he says, is death. The unbeliever living under the power of the sin nature just produces corruption. It just produces death. Everything is negative. But the contrast in verse 22 is having now been set free from sin that is, set free from the control of the sin nature, and having become slaves of God, you have fruit or production to holiness or to sanctification. And the end is everlasting life. Now, wait a minute, you're saying. Didn't we get eternal life when we were justified? Yes, but that's just life without end with God. Here... Because the topic in starting in the middle of, of chapter 5 was no longer how to get to heaven or how to be justified. It's how does a justified person experience the fullness of life. Now we see that he is shifted and he's talking, he's clearly talking about how we experience sanctification, which brings us the fullness of everlasting life. Not just quantity, but quality. 
And so I've I've charted this this way, that sin produces death. That's the fruit or the end result of living either as an unbeliever under the power of the sin nature or as a believer under the sin nature. The end result is, is corruption and death and destruction. But obedience produces the fruit of righteousness, which brings with it sanctification or spiritual growth and the experience of eternal life. Now, this righteousness here that comes from obedience isn't the righteousness of justification because that's by faith. This is by obedience, so it's a different righteousness. This is the experiential righteousness that comes with with spiritual growth. So the righteousness here is experiential, which means the sanctification is experiential, and the eternal life is experiential. He's not talking about what happens after we die here. He's talking about what happens between now and the time we die. Between now and the time we die physically is when we can grow in the Holy Spirit produces genuine righteousness, experiential righteousness in our life. This is sanctification or spiritual growth, and it is eternal life right now that we enjoy right now. So how do we do that? Well, this was the big struggle for the Apostle Paul, which he gets into in the next chapter, is how do we do that? Do we just go out and make ourselves be obedient? And the answer, of course, we know to that is that that doesn't work. And so chapter 7 to me is one of the dark chapters in the Bible because it's a hopeless chapter. It's Paul trying to fulfill Romans 6 without the Holy Spirit just on the basis of his own morality, just on the basis of the strength of his own will. And he ends up just absolutely, totally frustrated and depressed because he he can't do it. And then we get into Romans 8, which is the the high point, because in Romans 8 we learn uh, that it has to be done through the power of God the Holy Spirit. So we'll come back uh, next time to finish that, uh, to to get into chapter 7. But just as we close, and this makes it clear, remember, when we see this, that the fruit that we're talking about in verse 22 to sanctification is an everlasting life. That's not what happens after you die, but before you die. That means that when you get to Romans 6.23, when it talks about the gift of God is eternal life, that's not talking about the life after you die. In context, it's got to be the life before you die. The wages of sin. He's, he's explaining a principle that has application to the unbeliever because he's stating a universal principle that the, the payment, the, what you earn from sin is death. Whether you're an unbeliever living totally under the power of the sin nature, well, you, get, you, you earn what you get paid, which is, which is death. It's temporal. That's what the context is. But for the unbeliever, that ends up in eternal death. But for the believer, because sanctification is by grace just like salvation is, it's that free gift of the abundant life that we have, the potential of which was given us at the instant of salvation. So we'll come back next time, get into Romans 7, review a little bit, get into Romans 7. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of this great life that we have, of so much that was given to us. At the instant of salvation, as we are completely separated from all that we were before we were saved, 
given a new identity, a, a new position, a new family, a new nature. Everything is new. We're given the Holy Spirit to empower us. We're given all of these potentialities, but yet the issue now is our volition. Are we going to choose to say no to the sin nature? Are we going to choose to say yes to uh, the Holy Spirit and your word and put that into practice in, in our lives on the basis of our new identity in Christ and our new position in him? And we pray that you would challenge us with this in Christ's name. Amen.